Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. and welcome to the Fred Paul Show on ADH-TV. Well, there are good and bad things about the way Australians are preoccupied with sport and revere above anyone else people whose primary skill in life is to throw, kick or catch a ball. Our culture is diminished by this, coming as it does at the expense of admiration for people who excel in arguably more useful or creative pursuits. But the good thing is that sport unites us, often in the most euphoric ways. It's also a sign of how lucky we are. We don't revere military heroes because we've never had to repel a serious foreign invasion, and none of our greatest political idols had to storm parliament in order to become legends. All I had to do was maintain our already high standard of living. And the sports stars we choose to revere similarly reflect our good fortune. Most cultures wouldn't elevate someone like Shane Warne, for example, to the status Australians do. Warne was as flawed as any of us. But because he could spin a cricket ball better than any bowler in history, he was beyond reproach. 20 years ago, he besmirched Australia's otherwise immaculate reputation for good sportsmanship when he was found to have taken a diuretic to help him lose weight after a shoulder injury. Unbeknown to Warren, or so he said, the diuretic was banned because it could mask steroids. Most Australians forgave him for it because everything else about him represented Australian culture. He could effortlessly combine his worldwide success with smoking, drinking and chasing women with his mates, even if it was at the expense of his own wife and children. He was entrapped by the Sun newspaper in London in a three-way tryst with a couple of prostitutes and famously seduced British beauty Liz Hurley. His unapolog unapologetic hedonism appealed to a lot of Australians and the media knew it. So when he died from a heart condition in Thailand in March last year, 
The media was all over it. The Sydney Morning Herald covered it live as the story developed on the day, calling it a sad day for Australian sport and posted pieces by its best writers who, quote, tried to make sense of the news and shared their memories and insights about the champion spinner. The Australian dived into his Instagram account and said his final post, saying goodnight from Koh Samui, was, quote, eerie. Even the ABC digressed from its usual fodder of viral and environmental Armageddon to give Warney's passing a run. And of course, the New York Times, the Telegraph of London and the BBC gave his death the prominence around the world that it deserved. Politicians were quick to jump aboard too. Within hours of his death, of Warney's death, a sports minister in Warne's home state of Victoria, Martin Pakula, had spoken to the family and officials at the MCG, the MCG and, and announced, announced that the that Great Southern Stand would, after 30 years, soon be called the SK Warne Stand. No consultation with the public was necessary because Warney was a legend and it would be un-Australian to object to it. And of course, soon afterwards, Victorian Premier Dan Andrews, who was better known for his love of infrastructure projects than for sport, announced the government would fund a $1.6 million state funeral at the MCG. All of this instantaneous bereavement was justified because, as many of the reports said, Warney was, quote, only 52 when he died. And this is where the grief becomes to look, or starts to look, a little contrived. If Warney was too young to die, as many thought, then wouldn't the same journalists reporting his death also feel inclined to ask if there were any extenuating circumstances that hastened his demise? Could there have been something other than his predilection for hedonism that also contributed to his previously unknown heart condition. Something like, oh, I don't know, the same thing that had already been indirectly linked to the deaths of hundreds, if not thousands, of other healthy people. Many ordinary people suspected it, but the media stuck its fingers in its ears and went about doing the formulaic reporting it always does when someone popular with the masses dies. The link between heart conditions and the vaccines and the COVID vaccines is now impossible to ignore. One of the best analyses of adverse reactions to the Pfizer vaccine, which by the way is still being administered in Australia, is published by The Daily Clout, an organisation founded by Dr Naomi Wolf in the United States. The Daily Clout enlisted thousands of medical doctors to sift through the data from Pfizer's pre-release trials and the first three months of the vaccine rollout and found alarming evidence from as early as December 2020 that Pfizer knew about the vaccine's adverse reactions, including heart attacks. Warn took two doses of the Pfizer vaccine. 
internationally renowned cardiologist and COVID vaccine critic, Dr. Asim Malhotra said during his recent Australian visit, well, last week, I should say, it is quite, quote, it is quite clear that the COVID vaccines were likely the primary driver of Shane Warne's death, unquote. And the response to this from the media? Crickets. And I don't mean reruns of Warney's finest moments playing for Australia. Also quoted at the time was Dr Chris Neal, the president of the Australian Medical Professionals Society, whose perspective on this is not quite as severe as Malhotra's, but still warrants discussion. He says the nine-month gap between Warne's second shot and his death reduces the likelihood of a link between the vaccine and Warney's death. But Dr Neil also told me today that 20% of the fatal heart attacks referred to the Therapeutic Goods Administration in Australia were related to COVID vaccines. That's 20% of all the reports in the TGA's 52 years of existence. 20% happening in just two years. Dr. Dr. Neil called this a, quote, completely outrageous fact, unquote. And here's another alarming illustration of the link between the vaccines and, and heart attacks. It shows the correlation between the vaccine rollout in Victoria and presentations to ER departments for cardiac episodes. This graph was posted recently on social media by Dr. David Adler, a former Deputy Medical Secretary of the Australian Medical Association. Now, if he were a practicing doctor, such a post would have been in contradiction of the order famously issued by the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency to all doctors and nurses in Australia in 2021. Quote, any promotion of anti-vaccination statements or health advice which contradicts the best available scientific evidence or seeks to actively undermine the national immunisation campaign is not supported by the national boards and may be in breach of the codes of conduct and subject to investigation and possible regulatory action, unquote. In other words... <laughs> speak out against the vaccines and lose your license. Dr. Adler can escape such sanctions, however, because he's no longer practicing. And I am delighted to say he joins me now. Dr. Adler, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, Fred. And you've given a very uh, uh, interesting and pointed summary of, uh, of the issue without a doubt. Thank you, yes. Well, I'm looking forward to getting into this, um, first, we should point out that the graph that you posted on social media showed a correlation between vaccines and coronaries in Victoria, but that doesn't prove causation, yes. does it? Now, that goes without That's saying. Correct. That goes without saying. But the amount of evidence linking vaccines to heart problems is now, can, I, can we say, overwhelming? Uh, it's certainly strong, and the correlation is very strong. Uh, particularly with the younger age groups, when you don't expect to have uh, a high frequency of cardiac episodes coming into hospitals. Um, I should declare that uh, in your introduction, I, you said correctly that I'm a former 
member of the Secretariat of the Australian Medical Association. Uh, I have become a critic of the AMA, which has um, clamped down itself on the freedom of medical professionals to express their views. And I am a member of the new Australian Medical Professional Society headed by uh, Dr Chris O'Neill, who himself is a cardiologist. Um, I've also had an opportunity to uh, listen to uh, Dr Asim uh, Malhotra. Uh, I went to his presentation to healthcare professionals in Sydney, and I've also had a, uh, a more private meeting with him with a small group um, over a very pleasant lunch. He's a very impressive uh, cardiologist and uh, he's academically sound. Uh, he's also very uh, articulate and uh, his observations are uh, uh, are interesting and logical. Can I, sorry, can I just uh, can it, I just interrupt you there because I, I'd like you to get I'd like you just let's just go back to the comparison between the AMA, which is the 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 sort yeah. of establishment organisation. It's the uh, it's the union for doctors. I've heard it described in the past. And uh, your comparison between that and the the new Australian Medical uh, Professionals Society, which is uh, a much more um, a proactive organisation, how would you compare the two? Well, unfortunately, um, we have seen a number of our uh, esteemed organisations uh, adopt a sort of a woke culture. You know, the AMA has got into climate change, it's got into refugee policy and border security, uh, a whole range of things that are quite outside uh, its expertise. And doctors have been voting with their feet. When I was in the Secretariat, something close to 70%, that's 70% uh, of Australian doctors were members, it's now around 25%. So it can no longer be regarded as the voice of the medical profession. And one of the important things that we used to fight for is professional freedom, the sanctity of the doctor-patient relationship that doctors would give um, without uh, political oversight um, their own views and assessment for their individual patients. And the AMA, in my view, is no longer fighting for that. Uh, and a group of doctors uh, have decided to embrace um, the more traditional, important, professional, independent principles. And that is the Australian Medical uh, Professional Society. Uh, I wish them success. I'm an ordinary member. I'm not an office bearer. Uh, and they were the ones who brought um, Dr. Asim Malhotra to Australia to do a national speaking tour. Um, it was very successful. Um, there were crowds in every capital city uh, coming to hear him. Uh, he's got an important message. People can agree or disagree, but the AMA would no longer allow um, such a debate. So uh, uh, I think it is important. Yeah, I'd, well, I think the AMPS uh, contribution has been extraordinary mm. and incredibly brave. I mean, the the, the sanctions yeah. and penalties for uh, for doing what the AMPS has been doing lately are, are serious. You know, the legal complications. That, 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 I mean, they defend their members' uh, freedom of speech. I mean, 
you know, mm, it's exactly. sad, that, sad that the AMA would never do that. Don't, no, no, I, we, the reason we're talking about this today, David, is the lack of interest from the media, mostly the lack of interest from the media about what Asim Malhotra said about Shane Warne's death. But let's just rewind even further to um, March last year. Were you alarmed by the lack of curiosity, at, even at that time, about the cause of Shane Warne's death? Um, look, I, I've been alarmed about the uh, increase in uh, unexplained deaths that we've had across the country, um, you know, something close to 20,000 now. And it needs proper investigation. Um, I don't know the cause of Shane Warne's death. Um, the way that Asim Malhotra explains the mechanism uh, is very interesting. Um, we were taught at medical school that heart attacks were due to blockages in the coronary arteries primarily, um, atherosclerosis, plaques, cholesterol, those sort of things contributing. Uh, Dr. Asim Malhotra um, focuses on a different mechanism, which is inflammation. And his logic is compelling. We know that the vaccines cause or can cause uh, pericarditis, which is inflammation of the linings around the heart, myocarditis, which is inflammation of the heart muscle. And he is hypothesising that inflammation of the coronary arteries themselves can be a mechanism in causing heart attacks. Uh, the way to uh, investigate that would be, frankly, to do uh, autopsy-based studies where um, you dissect the coronary arteries, you have a look at tissue samples uh, under a microscope and determine uh, if inflammation of the coronary arteries has in fact occurred and is a contributing factor. Um, I think it's a study uh, that needs to be done on people that have uh, unexplained uh, heart attacks, um, that we have a higher frequency. Uh, is it due to coronary artery inflammation? Uh, can it be linked to the vaccines, I don't know the answers to that. Are you aware of that, Are you aware of those autopsies Point being of, conducted? No, I, I, I'm not aware. Uh, I, I think a, such a study um, needs to be done. Uh, and Dr. Malhotra is, or, or Dr. Neil here in Australia, would be uh, ideal people to oversee it. They're uh, specialist cardiologists, and. Um, they only have an interest in uh, in helping people. Uh, so it, it, it's important. Whether it was a factor in Shane Warne's death, it could have been. Uh, he was only 52. Uh, it's not all that common for uh, heart attacks to kill people in their early 50s. It's certainly uh, possible. Uh, and Shane Warne lived a lifestyle that... Um, I guess was fast and furious, and he, he may have had other factors. We don't know. Um, but the important but the, is, the important that, thing is that we are free. We should be free to talk about it, and that the debate Absolutely. on this topic seems uh, extraordinarily stifled. 
from people within the government. Now, you're, I mean, you're in a good position and we are very grateful that you come on and talk freely about this. But do you, are you aware of many people who are practicing, medical professionals who are practicing, who are still scared to speak up about this? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, it, it's, it's unusual that you get um, doctors with the courage of um, Malhotra and Neil, um, who are specialists, who are prepared to speak out and organise and go to the media and uh, make meetings, etc. It, it, it's relatively easy for me because, as you said, I'm not in clinical practice. I'm doing other things. I, I have been for a while. But there have been uh, doctors in Australia who have been put through disciplinary procedures for speaking their mind, uh, that have even lost their uh, practice licences and uh, have challenged that legally. Uh, the average doctor doesn't want that. Like everyone else, they've got family responsibilities, homes, mortgages, expenses, uh, and uh, it's, it's tough to go against the health authorities, and particularly when they're government-backed and particularly when they, at the end of the day, control your registration. It's not like a normal business where, uh, you know, if you're running a coffee shop, a cafe, and you're, you know, your customers can come and go. Here you actually need government sanction in order to practice. And the, uh, th that was placed uh, under strict conditions last year, last March, with that, uh, that order that I read out earlier. Now, let's, uh, let's get to the bottom line here, David. That order suppressed debate about the vaccines. We, what we now know about the vaccines is that they almost certainly killed a lot of people. Can you say, do you think that the suppression of debate by APRA cost Australian lives? Look, it, it may well have. Uh, it, it, it may well have. At least it did not allow informed consent, and, and that's critical. Uh, so if the uh, risk-benefit equation had changed, for example, for younger people, that uh, we know that without co comorbidities, uh, the coronavirus was not going to kill many younger people. And you might assess reasonably that, say, those under 50 that didn't have other significant medical illnesses um, should not be compelled to have uh, the vaccination uh, and, indeed, the cost-benefit and risks equation has changed. Uh, if the data is not provided uh, openly, then they can't make an informed assessment as to whether to have the vaccine or not. Uh, given that there has been an incidence of pericarditis, myocarditis, and possibly uh, heart attacks, uh, if you follow the uh, Malhotra um, argument, uh, yes. And we're not out of the woods uh, in that, uh, as, as you know, Fred, there's uh, currently proposals to restrict what can be uh, said on social media uh, alleging misinformation. Well, misinformation uh, early on might have included that the coronavirus came from a Chinese laboratory. 
that was suppressed and now it's regarded as uh, very much the, the likely source. Or that, many, or, that Ivermectin, or that Ivermectin could, uh, could cure it overnight if, uh, if, uh, you know, if, you, if you're infected with it. I mean, so much debate. And now, now the government is proposing not, not a repeat of what happened during COVID, but even more severe restrictions on free speech. The, the, well, as you know, there have been threats made against uh, Twitter, uh, Elon Musk, has been threatened with fines from Australia of $700,000 a day up to uh, for uh, providing a platform for what the government might regard as uh, misinformation. Uh, you know, from a medical point of view, that is, that is outrageous. Uh, we have, throughout history, uh, had conventional wisdom challenged and uh, often progress is made as a result of challenging conventional wisdom. There was a spectacular example in Australia um, where uh, there was a time when thalidomide was the drug of choice for nausea in pregnancy. And along came some people and challenged it and say, hang on a minute, it looks as if thalidomide is linked to major birth defects. And of course, if they had not had the freedom to challenge what initially was the conventional wisdom, then who knows how many more deformed babies we would have had in this country and elsewhere. So th there are many, many cases where uh, conventional wisdom in medicine one day is subsequently challenged and proved to be false uh, you know, in another time. And what, but what's changed? There are other examples as well. Well, there are, and they, they happen all the time. But what's changed since then, David? And we'll, we'll just uh, quickly discuss this because we've almost run out of time. But what's changed since the days of thalidomide in the 60s is that big government has aligned itself with big pharma. I mean, the government now, the authorities and the politicians seem to be seem to be uh, favouring the interests of pharmaceutical companies and being absolutely disinterested in the welfare of ordinary people. Well, I know there are some people, some politicians who have called for a royal commission into uh, the way the pandemic uh, is managed. Um, I hope that that occurs uh, and that it's conducted by someone who is truly independent and arm's length from this. Uh, I don't know um, where, you know, how much conflicts of interest exist and have uh, played a part in the policy. Uh, there have been enough concerns raised that also that requires a thorough investigation from a policy perspective as well. I don't want to call it out one way or another at the moment, but uh, certainly, uh, Asim Malhotra um, has, and he has expressed a lot of concern about uh, policy driven by pharmaceutical interests. Uh, if that's a, a major influence, uh, it needs to be separated, uh, completely separated from the way healthcare is, is delivered. There is a role for big pharmaceutical companies. They can afford to do the important 
R&D, that there has to be completely independent assessment via independent clinical trials uh, of their products that did not occur with the vaccines for the coronavirus. I want to state I am not anti-vax. Um, uh, I, I, my children have had the childhood vaccinations. I'm an advocate for the childhood vaccinations. I think uh, the reason we don't have polio and smallpox uh, around nowadays is because uh, of wonderful vaccination programs which have all but eliminated those diseases worldwide. But uh, the way that the coronavirus vaccines uh, have been handled is not consistent with the assessment that the other vaccines have been put through. Uh, and it does need, um, you know, proper investigation and bring on the Royal Commission. Yes, exactly. It's the assessment routine or the assessment procedures that seem to have been, uh, for want of a better word, corrupted since uh, the introduction of the more benign vaccines that indeed have given us so much uh, good health mm. outcomes. We started talking, uh, we started this conversation talking about Shane Warne, but I really have to emphasize the greatest tragedy is the ordinary families who have lost loved ones and case studies of those have been on this show and they are utterly heartbreaking. And uh, these are people who've lost their kids or their parents or whatever, the members of their family uh, for what seems like absolutely no reason at all except for the profits to be made by Big Pharma. Dr. David Adler, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Fred. Much appreciated. That's former Deputy Medical Secretary of the Australian Medical Association and COVID vaccine critic, Dr. David Adler. Well, one of the most alarming things about Australian politics today is, to use a cricketing analogy, how many easy boundaries the opposition batsmen are letting go straight through to the keeper. What should look like Don Bradman hitting sixes into the crowd at Lords in 1930 is more like Pommy Batsman Stuart Broad blocking almost all of the final 77 balls of a test match against New Zealand in 2013 to scratch out a boring draw. We have Labor governments almost coast to coast in Australia and there is no sign that a single one of them has any idea about how to make the country a better, happier, or more prosperous place. We're paying more for energy thanks to their stupid adherence to net zero targets. We are embroiled in a toxic debate about relations with our indigenous brothers and sisters. Housing costs are through the roof, as is inflation and interest rates. And one of the only things keeping us afloat is our coal exports, which Labor would kill off if they could. But the Liberal Party is more concerned with internal conflict. Today, Victorian Liberal leader John Pesuto decided to forge ahead defending a defamation case brought by a former member of his own team, Moira Deeming. Whether he wins or loses, it is going to be impossible for Pesuto to spin it into anything other than disastrous division under his leadership. Last week, Victorian Shadow Education Minister Matt Bark published a piece in The Age lambasting not the government for churning out generation after generation of brainwashed Marxists who hate Australia, 
but his own party for clinging too long to the philosophy of its founder, Sir Robert Menzies. The Liberal Party isn't modern and inclusive enough, he said, as if those two preoccupations had done Labor governments any favours lately. I asked Bark onto the show to talk about it, but he declined. Why would that be? Is he afraid of debate like most Liberals are these days? I also asked Ben Riley, the State Directory of the LNP in Queensland, to come on and discuss a cease and desist letter he sent to a young former member of the party, Barclay McGain. But he too declined my invitation. But Barclay has not, and I'm pleased to say he joins me now. Barclay, welcome. G'day, Fred, and hello to all the listeners. Um, I think you were spot on in that intro. Oh, thank you. Yes, well, I'm looking forward to getting into it. This is uh, interesting and uh, somewhat despairing for people who once uh, supported the great Liberal Party of Australia. Now, last week you tried to host an event for the Australian Taxpayers Alliance, which is which uh, of which you're employed. And at the event, there were three senior LNP politicians were going to speak and about 90 people were attending. They'd paid $30 a head to get in. And two hours before the event, you received a call from LNP State Directory Ben Riley. What did he say? Well, he got in touch with our Chief Economist, John Humphreys, um, who is our, our Chief Economist at the Australian Taxpayers Alliance. And he essentially entailed that because of my attendance and um, my um, activity um, prior to being suspended by the Liberal National Party um, meant that these three LNP MPs, despite agreeing to come onto our panel to discuss the state budget, that two hours before they were somehow um, no longer able to attend um, solely because of, of my attendance, which I, I felt um, in many ways was a knee-jerk reaction and completely over the top, Fred. Um, now, and okay. I think it's some... Um, yeah, let, yeah, let's just let's just look into that. So firstly, this was triggered by a call from The Guardian, which has been going after you mm. for some years. Um, so, the, so just to be clear, the LNP was spooked by The Guardian as if The Guardian, as mm. if it owes The Guardian any favours. It's the most left wing publication. That's right. it's, it's even to the left of the ABC, which is saying something <laughs> now. So this is all, The Guardian has been going after you because of something you did in 2019 and which I believe you uh, have since come to regret. Now, for the uh, benefit of the viewers, tell us what you did in 2019. Exactly. So in 2019, I was the, the chair of the Gold Coast Young LNP, which is one of the largest branches in Queensland. And we we're also one of the youngest executives. I was only 19 at the time. And we decided to do a bit of a stunt. Um, we went to schoolies. Um, a lot of people would say that was my, my first mistake. Um, but we went to schoolies and we essentially asked um, school leavers a number of questions on a range of political topics, anticipating that we'd get some humorous answers. Obviously, you got a lot of people there who were intoxicated, um, having a great time. And um, we kept the, the, the questions fairly simple. It was, you know, what are your thoughts on Scott Morrison? What are your thoughts on freedom of speech? And what are your thoughts on our Australian national flag and national anthem? 
And it was that final question um, which elicited a response, which was, you know, we've got to stop celebrating a culture that couldn't invent the bloody wheel. I'm obviously referring um, to Indigenous Australians or Indigenous culture rather. Um, and obviously, you know, the, the the toxicity of that debate, and we've seen it, it play out during this whole voice to parliament referendum, is uh, it's very divisive and it's also very sensitive. And as a result, simply by holding the microphone, um, I was lambasted in the media and, and cancelled by The Guardian, but it appears that... Uh, they're not done yet. They're still trying to bring me down. Well, it was interesting that you made that distinction between Indigenous Australians and Indigenous culture. That would suggest to me that you clearly bear no grudge towards our Indigenous brothers mm. and sisters, um, but it was just merely the culture that existed before white settlement that, uh, mm. that was being possibly mildly criticised at the time. But Four years later, you were only 19 at the time, four years later, you're still trying to uh, leave this behind. Now, just for the record, Barclay, what is your attitude towards our Indigenous brothers and sisters? Well, you know, exactly right, Fred. I mean, I truly do believe in the rights of the individual. I'm um, an individualism as someone who's on the centre right. Um, and I think that, yeah, as I make that distinction, I make it very, very clear that to believe that one race of, of people is in somehow better than another person is completely false. It's also definitionally racist. But, however, to believe that one culture can be better than another is anything but. In fact, that's the that's the, the tale of history, um, that cultures, you know, develop and they they. They bring things from each other. Um, no one can, um, I think everyone can agree that the the culture of ancient Rome um, was was truly one that was uh, quite a landmark. And we got a lot of things from the, the ancient Greeks as well. And indeed, um, the culmination is Western culture. And I truly believe that is one of the best cultures, if not the best cultures in human history. And, um, you know, if we segue that to a modern context, I think that, you know, folks on the left, the Labor Party and the Greens, they seem to think that they can pigeonhole people into different categories, um, particularly on the basis of race, which we've seen play out during this whole voice to parliament referendum. They want um, a, a race-based body um, enshrined into the constitution. And, you know, I thought that was the kind of um, things that we dealt with um, back in later centuries where we actually used to divide, uh, divide ourselves and in a modern Western liberal democracy would move past that, but apparently not. Um, I yeah. believe it's quite regressive to group people by their race. So, yeah, as a fundamental believer in individual liberty, I think we're all equal uh, um, under our flag. So let's return to last week. You were issued an ultimatum. Um, these three uh, senior LNP members um, would, would refuse to or would be withdrawn from the event if you were to remain in it. What decision was made at that point? Well, obviously, it put us in quite a bind. And um, we've got, you know, 90 people each paying $30 to attend this event. And they've, they've you know, bought tickets to the event, not for me or um, presumably for the ATA, but because they wanted the opportunity to hear from the shadow treasurer of Queensland just after our Queensland state budget and, of course, the former senator, Amanda Stoker. And when neither of them can rock up, it obviously put us in quite a bind. But, you know, we kind of thought, well, instead of caving to pressure, as as indeed um, the LNP did on this occasion and in other occasions, as you've outlined um, in the intro as well, Fred, um, we decided we'd stick to our guns. You know, I'm, I'm an employee of the ATA and, and I was super thankful that they decided to stick by me. And they said that, well, we're not going to host this event without one of our employees and simply dispel him um, solely because of a call from The Guardian. We're not going to be intimidated um, by these left-wing um, media outlets. And I think that's that's a real key takeaway. It gives me a lot of confidence um, knowing that there are some people willing to stand up to cancel culture and call it out for what it is. So you've got a room of 90 people expecting to see these three, uh, you know, LNP stars, you know, in Queensland at least. What was the mm. mood like when it was uh, revealed that they wouldn't be turning up? 
Well, I think there's a lot of confusion in the room um, because normally if you ever have an event and someone's not able to attend, normally the excuse, um, even if it's not true, um, is they had family matters come up or a personal issue come up, a delayed flight, even if they're an interstate speaker. Um, but when you've got three out of four guest panellists, you really can't go away from the truth. And the truth was that it was solely because of my attendance that it made it all too impossible um, for these people to show up. And funnily enough, I was actually quite thankful. One of the guests who happened to fill in for Amanda Stoker, Dan Ryan, um, he's a proud member of the Liberal National Party here in Queensland. And I, I recall your intro, Fred, he was actually called out in that article by Matthew Bach, um, Dan Ryan was, and he was actually labelled a race baiter um, solely because he believed that um, immigration um, needed to be limited or, or at least capped um, and, and he linked it to the housing crisis, which is, you know, I would have thought, um, uh, you know, an inescapable truth. But, of course, he was lambasted again, as you mentioned, by our own side, um, solely for pointing out what is the truth. And, um, you know, I was also happy to have him on our panel and he, he's well accomplished in his own right. So it's a shame that they continue attacking our own. And quite frankly, if the Liberal National Party are going to return to government here in Queensland, I think we need to be connecting with these centre-right organisations and reaching out and trying to expand the tent. Yeah, well, like I said, they got to stop letting these easy boundaries go through to the keeper. That's the point. Yes. <laughs> now, to make matters worse, there was a development after the event on Thursday. Mm. You received a letter stating a demand to cease and desist from the LNP, and it was signed by Riley himself. Now, what had you done that upset the LNP so much? Why is all this, why has it reached this point? Well, I, I honestly couldn't tell you, Fred. Um, I think that often they see that, you know, there's success um, in terms of getting people to an event from someone who was formally suspended. And ideally what they'd like you to do um, is when you have these kind of events that arise in any political party, any kind of scandal that arises, they want you to apologise and go to ground. Um, but when I saw what happened to me, obviously we detailed that before with the schoolies video, um, I looked at the situation and said, hang on, this is incredibly overblown. Um, I'm not going to be deterred and completely forget that politics even exists in my life as it affects indeed every single one of us. Um, I continued to be involved. And I think for that crime, um, they've realised that, oh, this guy's too much of a political risk. And, and you know, I thought that, you know, the idea of a cease and desist letter is actually... Um, you know, against a 23-year-old who, by the way, due to Hex, is actually in major debt, um, is uh, quite over the top. And, um, you know, it's something that I think, uh, you know, I know you reached out to Ben Riley, but really only he can explain. It's something that's quite hard to respond to. Um, all I want to do is be someone who's out there supporting the LNP and supporting good, strong conservative values. And I look at those values that Robert Menzies talked about, which were trashed by Matthew Bach, and, you know, that speaks to me. And that's something that I think would, would you know, is very applicable in 2023 Australia. Well, the letter accuses you of, of masquerading as a, as a member of the LNP, which you are clearly not because you were, your membership was suspended after that incident in yes. 2019. Now, is that correct? Have you masqueraded as a member of the LNP in any way? Not at all. And and I've, I've said, um, you know, I think the allegation was that I said that I'm involved um, with the Liberal and National Parties. And I think you'll find that a number of people are involved. Indeed, if we only allowed people who are members of the Liberal and National Parties to be campaigners handing out on voting booths or calling their friends and chatting to them about why they should become involved, and I think would become um, a very, very narrow-minded party um, to introduce all these stipulations and, and hurdles for people to jump over um, in order to truly grow our movement. And, you know, I'm not trying to um, 
I guess, cr criticise them on this front. But as a 23-year-old, I'm someone who, you know, is going to be hopefully on this planet for another 60, 70 years and, and someone who's going to be voting, um, as I intend to, for the Liberal and National Parties for the next 60 and 70 years. And if we don't start appealing to this demographic um, here at the University of Queensland or indeed, you know, um, even even at um, other institutions where, where young people tend to um, congregate, then we're really going to be... Um, condemned to irrelevancy. I mean, we're a party with an average age over 70. And if we don't start reaching out to these demographics and start bringing them into the tent, um, then I think that the future is quite bleak. Well, Barclay, I don't think if you were if you were allowed to remain inside the LNP tent, I don't think it would be as a voter for the next 50 years, you would make an excellent Liberal MP, given how passionate, intelligent and articulate you are about conservative values. And I think it's an absolute shame that the state party is trying to even exclude you from events. You can't even turn up to events. Yeah. It's crazy. Barclay, thank you so much for your time yes. and good luck uh, with whatever party you align yourself with next. They're luckier <laughs> than the LNP. Many thanks. Thank you so much, Fred, and I appreciate all the listeners for tuning in. That's former member of the Queensland LNP, Barclay McGain. Well, just before I go, and in keeping with the sporting theme of tonight's show, would you be interested in betting on the outcome of the forthcoming Voice to Parliament referendum? We Australians are famous for adding a little spice to the topics we discuss by lobbing a lazy lobster or pineapple on the outcome. Put your money where your mouth is. That's what it's all about. But curiously, not a single betting agency in Australia has opened a book on the referendum result. It should be a doddle. It's a two-horse race after all, and the amount of interest in it should guarantee a hefty purse, even if the odds were kept tight by the stingy bookmakers. But nada, what gives? You can bet on the outcome of the next federal election in about two years' time. And I have to say, the $4.50 you can get on the coalition actually sounds pretty tempting. But you can't bet on the referendum, which will be held this year. Why is that? Could it be related to this? The federal government launched an inquiry into online gambling last October, and its report is set to drop this week. It's well known in Canberra these days that if you want anything from the government, you have to first show evidence that your organisation is supporting the voice. Mostly this comes in the form of saccharine corporate or lobby group advertising campaigns about how the voice will empower their Indigenous stakeholders. But there's an even more cunning way for the gambling industry to support the yes case for The Voice, and that is by not running a book on it. Every Australian knows that polls can fluctuate and are not always entirely reliable. But betting odds hardly ever lie. Short odds are almost always rock-solid proof that the result is already known. And I'd bet anything that if there was a book running now on the referendum, the case for the odds for the no case would be pretty short indeed. Of course, I'm only speculating, but is there a better explanation? 
If anyone from the gambling industry is watching, feel free to get in touch and provide me with a better reason. Well, that's all from me tonight. Thanks for watching. If you want to see more ADH content, have a look around our website or app for some of the best commentary in the nation from people like Mark Stein, Alan Jones, Daisy Cousins, David Flint, Nick Cater, Lyle Shelton, David Pellow, and more. Tell your friends, ADH is the new home for common sense commentary. And there's no shortage of things to comment about these days. I'll see you next Monday at 7 p.m. Good night.